Good morning, church. It's a wonderful privilege to be in the pulpits this morning, or the mic stand, I should say, rather. Um, I'm continuing with Philippians chapter 2, and we're in verse 5 to 8, so if you don't mind opening there, it's always good to follow in your own uh, Bible. It is going to be up on the screen to help us, but I encourage you to read it in um, your own Bible if you've got it with you. The last time I preached two weeks ago, I said that Paul's moving the letter in a different direction now. He uh, starts off quite autobiographical, speaking about himself and where he's at and uh, the things he's working through. But in verse 27, he starts to target his audience, the Philippian church, and us, and challenges them to live a life worthy of the gospel. Um, and then he starts showing them how that plays out, how you can do that. And Bryce continued with that thought last week. You know, I said some of it's going to entail suffering, but it's not just going to be suffering. It's uh, got a lot of positivity in Christ. He goes on to say at the start of chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, of course there is. Any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy and joy. And um, so now we get to, Paul's going to double down on what he's been trying to explain to us. He's treating them as citizens of heaven. This theme of citizenship started in verse 27. It's going to continue all the way through to the end of chapter 3. And I'm going, I've decided I'm going to call you citizens of heaven every time I preach in, you know, in that gap. Because that's what I feel Paul is trying to get them to see and understand. You are citizens of heaven. And this morning, he is going to show us the chief citizen. We're going to take a look at the chief citizen of heaven and look at how he thought and how that affected how he chose to live. And we are to follow after him. So in verse 5. He says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're talking about what a citizen of heaven looks like. And now Paul's showing us the chief citizen. And there's been a few characteristics we've looked at, but this, the main one from last week, and we're doubling down on it this week, was humility. Paul's encouraged us. He says, be humble, uh, you know, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the, the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That was last week. And now we look at Jesus, and it says, have this mind. This is a beautiful text because it gives you insight into the mind of Christ. What was driving him? What was he thinking when he came and lived this life amongst us and eventually it ended with him dying on a cross, what was at the forefront of his mind? 
And the main point in this text and what this sermon is about is humility. And humility is interesting because I think we misunderstand it. Sometimes we want to put ourselves down or make ourselves less. Um, we think that might be humility. My first point this morning, and you're going to see it in the text as well, is that humility starts with knowing who you are. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Michael Eaton says, um, humility doesn't start with nothing. It starts with something. Jesus was in the form of God. The Greek word there is morphe, and our, we need to just go a bit slowly through some of these technicalities because it can be misunderstood as saying he was kind of like God, like in his shape or form. It's far deeper word than that. It means in his very essence, inside and out, he is God. It's one of the uh, best texts we get for uh, uh, Jesus being God, is this one where it starts with his humility, but actually it starts with starting off in the very form of God. The NIV translates it well, and it says in the nature of God. That's where Jesus starts. He knows who he is. He is God. And that's how we have to start. It's why Paul's saying to you and the Philippians and you and me this morning that we are citizens of heaven. This is who we are. You, you, you're going to let me finish the sermon before you get too big ahead. But you're quite a big deal. You don't realize it. Okay? You are sons and daughters of God with all of the privileges that come with being part of his family. When you pray, he bends his ear to listen to you. That's incredible. When I was teaching at Sterling Primary School, and this is a bit embarrassing because the old principal sitting right over there, but Peter and I have been friends for a long time. And one day, someone, uh, we were visiting Clarendon for some teacher's conference thing. And the Clarendon staff room was a little bit upgraded on the Sterling staff room. Sterling, quite well run, um, money's managed well, you don't overspend on anything. Okay? The Clarendon staff room was a bit of a wow factor, you know. So what the one teacher said to me was, Mark, we need to take a, like a, a a video of, of the Clarendon staff room and the good stuff here, and then we're going to put you in it, like standing next to the coffee machine and how nice it is. And she said, and I never forgot, and she was right. And it was a, a compliment. She said, you have his ear. If, if we go and tell him, hey, let's upgrade the, he's not going to listen. But because I was friends with Peter, now, he didn't listen to me either, so, right. <laughs> so let's just get that straight. But they were right about this. I knew I had his ear. It meant he was willing to listen because of the relationship we had. When God says to you in the Psalms, when you pray, he bends his ear to listen. You have the ear of 
heaven. It's an incredible privilege. Angels look at you and they uh, long to be in your position. They minister day and night before the King of Glory and one day you will be above them. You have an incredible position in Christ. Humility. Now, I'm not saying this to puff you up and get all arrogant. That's the flip side of this message. But it starts with knowing who you are. If you really want to walk in Jesus' shoes and live like he did, where he was able to lift every single person who's ever lived above himself, and that's where we're going, it starts with knowing who you are as Jesus did. He was God through and through. You start with something. You also have something very significant because you belong to God. You are no longer orphans. You are sons and daughters with immense power and privilege. And God looks at you. He thinks of you more than the sand on the seashore. You never interrupt him when you pray. He's always already thinking about you when you're praying. He thought about you first. We, God doesn't need to think more about you. We need to start thinking more about him. We need to have him in our minds more and more and more. And at the forefront, in the morning, in the day, at night, he's already there thinking about you. That's why we know he's here. Because his people have gathered to worship him and be with him. He's here. He's present. And we are to be a humble people. But humility starts with knowing who you are. Just as it did with Jesus. But once you realize who you are, it takes time for your behavior to catch up. But the Spirit is given to you to help you with that. And we are busy being sanctified, right? You already are a son and daughter of God. It cannot be taken away. Your name is written on his hand, graven on his heart. It won't change. That's your identity. Heaven is sure. You're heading there. But we live in this body of sin and we struggle with sin and it takes time for um, our behavior to catch up. But the Holy Spirit is at work in us and if we are surrendered, then there's progress. We can slow that down. So how does it work with humility? We're not great here. We struggle far more on the other side of this. We struggle with pride. We struggle with self we are focused on ourselves. You and me, all of us, I'm going to let you into some of our thoughts just now, and nearly all of you have them. And I have them too. But as we are getting sanctified by the Spirit and becoming more like Christ, we're moving away from self towards loving others and becoming humble, which is who He is. That's who He is. Once you know who you are, my second point this morning is humility chooses not to exploit the advantages of the position you hold. See, Jesus was God. And the very next part, it says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. And there's a whole bunch of Bible translations that struggle with this text. And I want to actually take you through three different translations each one's got some form of merit, but I want to land on what I think is the strongest one. Um, the King James says he did not count it robbery, okay, which is quite a strange word. 
to use. And most of the, he didn't count it robbery uh, to be equal with God. Um, most of the commentators I read were really struggling with why they chose that word robbery. It is a possible translation. It's just what is the meaning of it. Um, I think robbery has some merit in not that Jesus is being a thief in any way, but I think it's a statement of his equality to God. Jesus, when I read, when I used to read the King James, when I read the King James and I read that part, I was comfortable with it. I thought it was saying, here's God, here's Jesus, they're equal, and that's not robbery. You're not robbing God. You don't have to bring God down and rob some stuff from him to make him equal with Jesus. It's not robbery to put Jesus equal with God. I think that's got some merit as a thought. But another translation, and I think it's a better one, doesn't say he did not count it as robbery, but it's this one here, the ESV saying um, he did not uh, count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And I don't think you have to grasp for something you already have. I want you to think now. There are two occasions in Scripture I can think of where someone tried to grasp for equality with God. And you only do that if you don't have it. And it's wrong to do it. Is it coming into your mind? Okay. The first one is Satan looking as an angel in heaven with a position in heaven, looking to God and going, I want to be like him. That's grasping for something you can never get to. And sin starts right there. The second one is Adam. And the snake coming with uh, deceit, but saying, did God really say that? He just doesn't want you to be like him, knowing good and evil, knowing all things. And we grasp for wanting to be like God. And you and I still do that. One of the best sermons I've ever heard, so I can't claim these next thoughts as my own, but I'm going to share these nuggets of truth with, with, with you, was a sermon by Luke Harper where he said, um, I can't even remember the title, but it was something like wanting to be like, we, we want to be like God, but we're not God. And he just took us through some basic theology. And for a long time, I was quite prideful listening to him going, come on, Luke, this is simple stuff. He said, God is all-knowing. I know that. God is all-present. I know that too. God is all-powerful. I know that. And then Luke rocked me, and I'm still rocked by it. He said, we are trying to be those three things. We are trying to reach for that. And, and he gave me practical examples. He said, do you at work ever put yourself in more places than one? Try and be everywhere at the same time? Yes, only God can do that. Do you ever get extremely disappointed when you've tried to do something, especially around people? You've tried to help them, shape them in some way, and the thing fails? And you don't have the power to 
mold them into the thing you want them to be? That, only God can do that. We want to do that with people. Do you ever find yourself not acting on something God's telling you to do because you want to know more information? But God, I don't know what the next thing looks like. I want more, like he does. He knows it all. We want to be him. Give me more, give me all, and then I'll follow. That's not what he wants from you. He doesn't want you to be all-knowing. He wants you simply to know that he knows, and you can trust him. You and I, just like Satan, just like Adam, grasp for something we don't have. Jesus does not need to grasp for equality with God. He already has it. What he does as being God is he chooses not to exploit any of the advantages. He comes down, takes on the full limitations of human flesh. He needs to sleep. He needs to eat. He gets tired. He gets sick. He has immense privilege available to him as God, immense advantages, and he chooses. That's what humility looks like for him. That's what's in his mind. He will take no advantage of any of it. It's his. It belongs to him. He knows it. He knows who he is, but he chooses not to exploit it. And that's the third meaning. It's not just... Um, uh, and this is a newer meaning, actually. The, the recent studies are pointing it this way, that it is saying here, Jesus did not want to exploit his um, being God. Humility chooses not to exploit the advantages of a position you hold. I remember when my younger days, I used to wear a, a wife beater. I used to um, gym a little bit. And I've got, um, I like to call them the wood shoulders, okay? So my, my, my youngest brother is a bodybuilder, and my other brother, Steve, that you know, he also had, he had nice wood shoulders back in the day. And so what I was doing is showing off what I thought were my best assets, okay? Right? I was single, you know, in my mind, I thought this is going to work. It didn't work. But one day, on this ship, there was a guy called Philip Toggenberger. He was a giant. Okay? Swiss giant. He might have come from the Nephilim in the <laughs> tree somewhere far down there. Okay? And we had all just shown up. There's 50 of us. There's many potential wives out there. And so these young 20-year-old men, we all decide we're going to do the typical thing that all the girls must be interested in and are going to choose us now because of it. We decided to start arm wrestling. We decided to start showing who the manna are. And Philip is the champion, clearly, at the table there. And one of my friends, Lyndon, he was uh, thin as a twig but had the pride of a lion. Okay? He backs himself. And he goes and he sits there in front of the giant. And where a crowd is all around. And, and Lyndon and Philip take a long time. And, and Lyndon had an immense will. 
and, and Philip eventually beats him. And I looked at that and I thought, I'm stronger than Lyndon. <laughs> and all the girls are watching, had my eye on one of them, looked at her, she looked at me, I thought, here we go. <laughs> and I sat down in front of Philip and he crushed me in seconds. But he gave me the biggest compliment. I left floating. You know what he said to me? Because I said to him, I said, why did it take you so long to beat Lyndon, but you crushed me? He said, I didn't know I could beat you. I didn't know I could beat you. I knew I could beat Lyndon. And in that moment, that's a bit of a uh, really cool thing for him to say, but how I think that fits with this sermon here is there's still something in Philip that has to prove himself. Even though he's clearly the strongest guy in the room, something in him, when he saw me and my shoulders, which were a mirage, <laughs> went, I'm not sure where I stand. I have to prove myself. Boom. But real strength, and real humility chooses not to exploit the advantages you hold. You know you're the strongest in the room. You don't need to show. And that's what Jesus is like. He knows who he is. He can come down here and be the most humble of all. And he doesn't exploit any of the advantages available to him. What does he do instead? It says... And I've got to spend a bit of time here because some have misunderstood this text. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It is not saying that Jesus stops being God. At no point in Jesus' life does he stop being God. There is an illustration of an emperor, uh, I think it's in China, one of these uh, celebrations they do, they do this. This emperor comes in with robes and a crown and, and slowly things get stripped off him until he leaves a vagrant. And um, someone uh, in the commentary said they watched that and they thought, oh, maybe that's a picture of what this is. And then they realized, no, that's not true. Because Jesus never stops being God. He never stops being king. In fact, he's not giving up anything. He's showing us this is what God is. This is who God is. This is how God thinks. He never stops being God. So what does empty himself mean? It's not what does he empty himself out of, but it's what he's emptying himself into. Staying God the whole way he takes on the form of a servant. Form meaning the exact inner and outer representation of that thing. He is a servant, authentically, through and through. The exact same word morph is used. Paul's going to use that word three times. Each time he's saying he is this thing. He is God. He is a servant. What does being born in the likeness of men mean? 
doesn't mean he wasn't really a man. That's not true either. Hebrews tells us that in every way he was like us. So he is fully man. But there was one difference, and it's significant. He never sinned. He knew no sin. So in how was he like us? He was exactly like us. How was he not like us? He never sinned. And so the ambiguity fits. Being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, a human through and through, in and out. He humbles himself again. He humbled himself the first time by stepping down from his throne in glory, taking on human flesh, being born in a manger in an obscure village in an oppressed country, taking hold of zero advantages as God and lived amongst us. Then, even as a man, he humbles himself again. No one ever humbled themselves as much as Jesus. You can never come close. No one went the distance he went to go as low as he did. And he becomes obedient. I always find that interesting, becoming obedient. There's an, another text where it says he learned obedience. And I didn't understand it until I looked at Gethsemane. When your mind is always in line with God's mind, when your will is always aligned with God's will, he said, my food is to do the will of my Father. It's, what I, it's my meat and drink. It's who I am. It's what I do. There had never been a moment in all eternity where God wanted something and Jesus wanted something else until Gethsemane. And that's what obedience is. Obedience, and you and I need to learn this too, is doing the thing that the superior one is telling you to do even when you don't want to. It's easy to do it when you agree. And Jesus in Gethsemane learns obedience. How? Because he has to die on a cross. He does not want to go there. And he becomes obedient. That's humility. God somehow immortal dying. Our minds will never wrap around that. And he becomes obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why did he do that? This is my last point. Humility has the strength to lift everyone else up above you. Jesus Christ, dead on a cross for the sins of the whole world, that whoever would believe in him, might receive the gift of eternal life. Every single human that has ever lived, he placed himself below them. Think of the worthlessness that is in, in us. The way some of us have lived, and I don't mean us like you sitting here, I'm talking about the worst humans you can think of in history. And he puts himself below them all 
to die on a cross for this whole world. Humility has the strength to lift everyone else up above you. This is the mindset of heaven, friends. Do you want to know what God's like? God is like this. Jesus is showing us this. God is someone, when you get to heaven, what are we going to be doing? We are going to be serving one another fully. That's why he comes. That's why he uh, is born in a manger. That's why he lives a humble life. That's why he washes feet. That's why he dies on a cross. This is the mindset of heaven. This is who God is. It's not self-serving. It's not um, uh, self-focused. It is always on others and putting them up above ourselves. That's why Paul says, and he's using Jesus, this chief citizen, as an example, saying to you, citizens of heaven, put others above you. Live like that. And you know what's interesting? We get this right in part. But this world tells us to put ourselves first. Live our best lives. You're worth it. And the more we do that, the more unhappy we generally are. We can go for all of our comforts. Ecclesiastes is all about this. We can get all we've ever dreamed and wanted. All of our dreams. And at the end, they can feel like ashes in our mouths. We are not satisfied running after self. That's the end of that. That's what Solomon's great experiment was. The end of having everything you ever wanted is deep unhappiness. The end of living for you is deep unhappiness. God wants the best for you, so he's showing you another way, and he's saying to you, live for others, love others. You know what starts to happen as you do that? You start to experience his, the things that are his, that belong to him, his joy, his peace, his great love. That's why Paul can say there is encouragement in Christ, there is comfort in Christ, there is love in Christ, there is joy, and it's as we put others first. So I want to get practical as I get right at the end over here. God is at work in you, church. You are already citizens of heaven. It's done. Thank you, Lord. You have given us your spirit, Lord, who is relentlessly at work in us and never gives up. Despite our apathy and our um, resisting. And you are wanting to make us more like Christ, who is like this, who is humble and not self-preserving, uh, who's putting others first. The more you become like him, the more you will think like that. So how does that work practically? Can I just be really open with you as a church this morning? I get really sad when I hear someone say, I left that church because I wasn't feeling it. Do you see what's at the center of that thinking? It's me. It's how I feel. Now, you might need to leave a church, right? Because you aren't feeling it. But hopefully, it's because you've gone to the Lord in prayer and he's leading you and guiding you and going, you're not feeling something here because I'm not here. And now I want you to go and do this. Then you're on the right track because 
you're not leaving the church because you're not feeling it. You're, you're, not, you're leaving it because God's shepherding you. He's leading you. But what I often hear and what I think I see is people being led by their own thoughts and their own feelings. Church isn't about, you came here this morning and I want to ask you, why did you come here? Did you come here because you wanted to be ministered to? There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you need to be ministered to, but again, if that's the main focus, if that's what church is, who's at the center? What's Jesus saying to you and me as we do church together? Why should you be here? You should be here because you love God and you love others. So, God, have you planted me at Sterling? Okay. What do you want me to do that looks like serving and loving others? And I want to say to you, you don't know about it, but there's 170 volunteers at our church. That's a lot. 170 people are putting their hands up so that church can happen on a Sunday doing all sorts of things you never think about. And their drive is because they love you. They want you to be served. That's acting like Jesus. That's living like Jesus. So Kat sitting behind over there could be doing anything else this morning, but she's on the visuals making sure that things line up for you. She can't engage the worship as much as she'd want to. She can't maybe even engage the sermon as much as she wants, wants to. But she's here today going, Lord, I want to love other people. And one of the ways you're giving me to do that is, is this humble thing, and I'm going to do it. And there's... 170 people just like that, finding different ways. It might be in the car park. It might be with our kids. There's a million things it could be. But why are they doing that? They're doing that because the Spirit's at work in their hearts, making them more like Christ. Church is about others. It's about coming and worshiping Jesus and then expressing your love for Jesus through loving others. And I want to challenge you this morning practically. You go, how do I practically apply the sermon? The thing you should be doing, church, is go, instead of going, did this thing meet me the way I wanted it to meet me? Was it what I was looking for? It's to go leave here today going, Lord, I want to be more like you. I'm amazed that this is what you are like. And I'm so grateful that you have given me your spirit and you're at work in me to make me more like you because I can't get this thing done on my own. I drift towards self all the time. I don't want you to feel bad if you thought of coming here for yourself. I do that all the time. Anita's family have a church up in Pretoria. I, I don't like it very much. I'm not going to name it. Matt's pulling me back a little bit. The, the worship's not what I would look for. And so when I go... I don't enjoy it, and then I leave like with those thoughts. I challenged myself in preparing this. That's a representation of God's church in a city I'm not connected to, and they are loving each other and serving each other there. And what right do I have to come along and say, you should, you know, get better at this? And I want to say to you guys, I get wanting to look for things in East London that are going to help boost you in your, your faith. There's nothing wrong with that. But can I just push you a bit further and say, what is it that God's asking of you to do to express love to other people? 
Because this thing you're looking for where you want God to minister to you, it happens best as you love others. And so this morning I'm going to close um, here in uh, prayer and I'm just going to go over these three things again. Know who you are. You are citizens of heaven. It's done. You have immense privilege and power. You don't need to exploit any of it because you already have it. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. And how does it look for you to lift everyone else up above you? What is it that God wants you to be doing that would be showing love to others, that would be living like he does? Let's pray. Lord, this text that we're looking at this morning um, is so powerful. That Jesus would step down from glory and humble himself to be a man and humble himself to die on a cross because he puts us first. What an example. And Lord, we want to say to you this morning, thank you. Thank you for the position you've placed us in in Christ. We didn't deserve it at all. We did nothing to earn it. But because of your great love, and because of the work of your Son, we are citizens of heaven. Thank you that the citizenship cannot be taken away. Thank you that we're going to enjoy immense privileges with you for all eternity that don't are incomparable to, to some of the tough things that we face this side. Thank you, Lord, that as you've brought salvation to us when we first believed, so you're also working that salvation out with us and making us more like you. We wrestle with self, Lord. We wrestle with pride. We put ourselves first too often. My prayer for this church, for myself this morning, Lord, would be that we would learn to obey and learn to surrender and learn to lift others up above us. I pray for practical ways to do that in every person's heart that you would reveal to them, Lord, how to apply that to their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.